Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, March 17th. Happy St. Patrick's Day is brought to you by... SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Benny J, take it away. Troy LaRavie, president of the Chicago uh, Principals Association. Troy, I almost said president of the Chicago Teachers Union. I don't know where my mind is. I almost uh, had you as president of the Chicago Teachers Union. Sorry, Jesse Sharkey. I understand the difference between principals and teachers. Troy, before we get with tons of stuff to talk to, but the Prince is, that is one of the coolest shirts I've ever, I wish folks could see this shirt. It's so cool. And, and I don't mean to put you in a stereotypical box, but I always thought of you as like a, like a a nineties guy who loved hip hop. Just, I didn't realize you had an affinity uh, for Prince or are you just wearing the t-shirt? Prince is my first love. <laughs> I adore Prince. I absolutely adore Prince. He was the first musical artist that I heard and went out and bought a record that he made. Um, I've loved Prince since, since I can remember, man, at least 82, maybe. Um, you know, and that was before, you know, hip hop even became like a, a thing outside of New York. Um, so, yeah, um, Prince is a huge part. There was a time on Facebook, I mean, on Twitter, where I only followed three people. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Sarah Carp, and Prince. <laughs> wow. What a, Sarah Carp, did you hear that? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you, hey, you must have. It goes back in my relationship, too, man, uh, with my son's mom. You know, I know my son's mom since I was seven. And we actually started dating when I was uh, about to turn 14. And it was during the summer of Purple Rain. And so Prince was like the soundtrack to our courtship. And then we kind of faded away and then got back together in 86. And at that point, Sign of the Times was out with the, the, the gorgeous song, Adore, Forever in My Life. And so that became like the signature part soundtrack of our relationship. Um, in fact, I think a, the door was our wedding theme song. <laughs> wow. I, um, I, I, I know we have really important, serious things to discuss. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've gone through so much print stuff in my mind. And one of the things that, um, I, if you haven't seen it already, uh, find it on YouTube. I'll send it to you. It's a video. James Brown. It's, it's in the like, late 70s. He's doing a concert in L.A. The one yeah. where Michael was there and then yes. told him to get Prince. Yes. Yeah, I saw you I know everything, Prince. <laughs> oh my God. Prince. I mean, okay, James Brown is up here. 
And and in defense of James Brown, by this time he was well into his fifties. Okay, so let's. uh, So he's doing his James Brown thing. He calls Michael Jackson up on the stage. Michael Jackson, who's a young Michael Jackson, starts doing his Michael Jackson thing. Michael Jackson says, "You got to bring Prince on." Who even knows if James Brown even knew who Prince was? Right, Prince. Prince comes on stage, ladies and gentlemen, and he just like blows everyone away. You know, uh, just playing the guitar. The, the greatest Prince moment on live was uh, Rock, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when they yes. did My Guitar Gently Weeps. That was incredible. That was, to me, man, like I, I'm not like a guitar aficionado, but it's certainly the greatest live guitar solo I've ever seen. No, that's right. Eric Clapton is up there. All these rockers are up there in their eyes like, I thought this guy was a singer and a dancer. And he's right. just like, where are you taking it? Dude, that was mythological. What he did um, what he did was mythological. <laughs> it was insane. Tell your listeners, look up Prince, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It'll be worth every moment you spend <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you 100 percent on that one, and take a look at uh, it, George. It's uh, Eric Clapton's up there. I think Tom Petty's up there. All these rockers and George Harrison's son, and yeah. it looks just like George Harrison, which is kind of freaky, you know, because after this is after George Harrison had died, they were paying right. a play, uh, playing a tribute to George. Yeah, but Prince kills it. Even you know he had that Hendrix. At Prince, like his son, is on stage playing a guitar, looking at Prince like a fan, like. I don't believe I get to be up here playing the guitar watching this man do this. He's like losing it on stage while he has to be the accompaniment to one of the greatest live guitar solos in history. What the look on George Harrison's son's face, I wish I knew his name, um, was incredible. Yeah. It, said it, I, uh... it said everything. He was up there like a fan. Yeah, all right. I am really. We'll have to do a whole show on Prince. Uh, maybe uh, do a, a your uh, uh, Eddie Murphy show as well. I'm really feeling Eddie Murphy these days. I'm, all these '80s guys. I'm feeling. I didn't even like the '80s, but uh, I'm feeling. But we're going to move on to the more important topics. I'm going to resist the urge to talk about seeing uh, Purple Rain the first time I saw it and how it blew my mind. All right, we'll resist that urge. I saw it uh, twenty times. <laughs> damn, twenty times. Twenty. I saw it maybe three times downtown and then the Rhodes Theater on 79th right off of Cottage. They had Purple Rain up for like six months. It would be Purple Rain and another movie, like Purple Rain and the Charles Bronson movie, Purple Rain and some other movie. It was, and I would go watch Purple Rain with whatever other movie was playing like every week. <laughs> that is wild. Purple Rain and a Charles Bronson movie. All right. Let's get down to serious topics. Um, and I'm really going to resist uh, the temptation to talk about Prince, even though I, I see his face every time I look at you on the screen. Um, <laughs> very interesting report that you came out with. And we talked about, we tease on the show all the time, the official proclamations of the Board of Education, Janice Jackson and Lori Lightfoot, how things are going great. Everything's wonderful. Uh, we were just doing a bit before you came on about uh, how they just expect smooth sailing when they reopen the high schools in uh, April. Uh, your association, the Principals Association, just came out with a report. I've not read the report, the written report. I, I watched your Facebook comments about it, uh, and that was kind of eye-opening. It's definitely a different version of what's going down in our public schools right now uh, since uh, they reopened than you'll get from, well, uh, the Board of Education, Janice Jackson, and Lori Lightfoot. So why don't you talk about some of the key findings, Troy, uh, in your report? Go ahead. Sure. 
Well, first of all, we surveyed uh, all the district's principals. About 195 of them responded. Uh, it was a good distribution of principals across different school types. And the report found some serious racial inequities, but the strange thing is adding a question about race was almost an afterthought right before we sent the survey out. <clears throat> what the survey was originally designed to do was answer questions about key uh, adverse learning conditions that principals were warning us about because they didn't have the right staff. And so principals were saying, for example, we're going to have students in in-person class who have a remote teacher, right? They're going to come to school in person, but their teacher will be at home on a screen, which was not what Lori Lightfoot was promising people. She mentioned that not, not, not one time, right? And so... Uh, others were telling us we're going to have teachers, we're going to have classrooms with no teacher at all, not on screen some days, because we know there are people who are going to call in, and we know the substitute pool is desolate. So, so we're going to have kids who just have no one except the minimum wage employees who was sent there to watch them <laughs> when they have a teacher on screen. <laughs> right? Uh, principals were telling us we're going to have kids who don't have recess because we don't have the staff to give them recess. Can you imagine sitting in school all day with a damn mask on and not having recess? Um, and so we originally wanted to know how prevalent were these things? Was this just a one-off, you know, maybe 2% of the schools, 5%? How prevalent was this phenomenon, especially the in-person student with the at-home teacher? Right, and right at the end, right before, maybe an hour before we sent the survey out, I decided to ask, add the question, uh, what, what are your school demographics? And you had a choice, majority black, majority white, majority Hispanic, majority Asian, or no population over 50%. So multicultural, where there's different populations and none are over 50%. So we added that question at the last minute. Then we got the uh, results then we were able to filter the results based on their answer to that question and see if there were differences. And so what we found was that to that most important question, what, like how many classes have this remote teacher? How many in-person classes have a remote teacher? And the average across the district was 32%, a full third, which is sickening. Like one out of every three kids goes into in-person learning and they got a remote teacher. What are you, what, what's going on here? But then when we broke it down by race, it became disgusting. Um, for majority white schools, 17% of their classrooms have a remote teacher. For majority Hispanic classrooms, 40% of their classrooms have a remote teacher. And for majority black schools, 47%, nearly half of the classrooms in majority black schools have a remote teacher. Teachers are showing, students are showing up in person to watch a teacher on a screen in half the classrooms in majority black schools. Um, and then we started asking other questions too. Like uh, one of the things people told us, we're gonna have the mixed grade levels. And by mixed grade levels, we mean <clears throat> in order to make this in-person thing work, Lots of schools were going, well, schools were telling us they were going to have to take fifth and sixth grade classes and combine them. So you have a teacher trying to teach two different curricula at the same time, which is impossible. And of course, it degrades the, uh, uh, the learning conditions. Um, and then um, some were going to have to take 
Uh, but anyway, so he's mixed grade classroom. The overall but for majority white schools, it was a little less than 6%. Majority Hispanic schools, 7.5%. And majority black schools, 9.3% of students are showing up when they were remote. They were at least with a, a teacher who focused on their grade level. But they're coming into in-person with their grade level and another grade level in the same classroom. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I'd rather my son do remote learning for eighth grade than in-person learning for seventh with seventh with the teacher trying to teach him seventh and eighth grade curriculum any day of the week. Um, and of course, there was this other phenomenon where teachers were going to have to be switched outside of their subject area or their grade level expertise. And so a fifth grade teacher having to teach second grade, right? Or a math or uh, a social studies teacher having to teach math to make this work. And so we asked how common was this? Uh, and in majority black schools, it was 4.7%. In majority Hispanic schools, it was 7.5%. So this is the one area where majority Hispanic kids had even more of the adverse learning condition uh, prevalent in their schools than majority black. For majority black, it was almost 5%. For majority Hispanic kids, they were taught by non-experts 8% of the time. And for majority white schools, and I kid you not, 0% of the 19 majority white schools that responded to our survey, and they're only about 34 uh, majority white elementary schools, so we got well over half of them, of the 19 that responded, 0% had to subject their student to that particular adverse learning condition having a teacher who's outside of their subject area or grade level to teach their kids. And I think one of the most insidious ones was when we asked, what was the average percent of in-person classrooms each day that had no teacher at all? No in-person, no remote. So this is typically where an in-person teacher is supposed to be there and doesn't show up, calls off, and there's no sub. Um, and for majority white schools, 3% of classrooms each day. For majority Hispanic, almost 7%. And for majority black schools, 11% of students, one out of 10 every single day was in a classroom with no teacher on the screen, no teacher in the classroom. And so either two things have to happen then. Either they have to split these kids up on the fly and put them in other classrooms, which violates the COVID protocols or they have to sit in the classroom all day with one of those miscellaneous employees who's not qualified, doesn't have a teaching degree, and makes $15 an hour, mm. right? And so you take all these adverse learning conditions and you put them all on top of each other and see that black students are subjected to them time and time again, then what we see is that Lori Lightsfoot's version of in-person learning actually reduced the quality of learning for significant percentage of black and brown children in this city and for some white students in this city. Um, and so it is a systemically racist phenomenon that she's created here, whether it's intentional or not, it is systemically racist and something needs to be done about it. Uh, one of the other tragedies about this is that we were at board meetings in December, I went to the board meeting in January. I went to the board meeting in February. And every single month, I warned them 
that they were not, they did not have the staff to give these kids either adequate safety or a decent instructional program. And every single month, it's like, next speaker. Yeah. Next speaker. Uh, and so they ignore. And the only reason I know this stuff is because of principles. Principles are uniquely positioned in this city. We are the most valuable yet unused resource this city has in terms of creating an effective school system for these students. Because when a mayor or a board of education or a state legislature passes a policy, who implements that policy in the school? Principles. Right? And so we have this perspective that's unlike anyone else in the system. We can see a bad policy a mile away because we, as soon as we see it, we're thinking through implementation yeah. and whether or not it's possible or not. No one has that perspective. And yet this district, not only did it not consult us, but even when we went to them and warned them, they ignored the advice of their principals. They ignored the warnings of principals. And this is the crap that we get as a result of it. And so we're telling parents, if your kid shows up to school in person and they have a teacher on the screen, don't contact the principal. Contact the people who ignored your principal, the mayor and the CEO. If your kid's in a mixed grade classroom when before he had a single grade classroom when he was learning at home and his instruction has suffered as a result of that, don't call your principal. Call your mayor. If your child shows up and there's no teacher at all in his classroom, remote or in person, don't call your principal. Call your mate. Put pressure on the person that ignored your man, that ignored your principals to get this right. Uh, and the, the first way to start getting this right is to have principals involved in every aspect of the policymaking process from beginning to end. Not some little BS group you put together in the beginning and say, hey, we got input <laughs> from beginning to end. Uh, that is not uh, the way things are done in Chicago, Troy. You know as well as I do. The way they're done in Chicago is shut up and do what I tell you, even if it makes no sense. All right, let's break down some of the things you said. I took notes of what you said, and uh, I'm going to start with this uh, this point that you made. Uh, you, as a parent, would rather have your child doing remote learning than be in a class where you have seventh and eighth graders mixed, mixed grade classes. Why do you say that? If my child in eighth grade in remote learning, well, first of all, I'd rather have him in person doing eighth grade, right? But if I have the choice and there's a teacher who has to teach seventh grade curriculum and eighth grade curriculum, and you have the same time constraints and he's remote and and he's uh, in person, or if I can get a teacher that can focus on eighth grade remote, I don't even know. I don't even know how to explain that other than he gets all of the time that is available for instruction focused on the curriculum that he needs to learn <laughs> rather than half the time available for instruction focused on the curriculum that he needs to learn. That's a simple oversimplification of the issue because there's ways to tweak it. Um, but in the end, that that's that's the decision maker for me. All right, uh, and uh, that makes sense. The second point, and it's probably the uh, the hardest one to answer: why the disparity? 
uh, I took the numbers. I could barely read my writing, but 47% of black, uh, black majority, black schools in your survey uh, had uh, kids, no teachers uh, showing up, kids learning by remote compared to 17% of majority white schools. In your mind, why that disparity? It's the same pool of teachers. So why teachers showing up, a greater likelihood of teachers showing up in a white school as opposed to a majority black school? Go ahead. So the one answer we know is it's staffing, right? So that's the one we know, lack of staff. But then it's like, why is there this difference in lack of staff? That's the one I can only make educated guesses about. And there are two or three that come to mind immediately. One is one I'll never know. Um, I guess we could possibly do a FOIA and figure it out. But are they approving ADA leave requests at majority white schools at a lower rate than they're approving ADA leave requests at majority black schools? Like that's the first one. That's that's the one that you almost don't want to ask. It's so freaking disgusting. <laughs> it's like, is that is what's happening? Is that a part of what's going on there? Like we want to make sure these kids <laughs> have a teacher in front of them, so you can't go on leave. But at these other schools, you all do whatever the hell you want. Um. So that's one. Two. I mean, there were existing staffing issues before this, right? Um. If a school has low enrollment, um, the district has set up funding for those schools to starve them. Right? Low enrollment schools should be funded, should just get automatic positions just because they're a school and not this lump sum amount per student that the principal has to figure out how to make work in a, with a low enrollment, with a relatively small school. My son's in a great school, but it's low enrollment because it's a small, it's just by design a small school. You know, it's one of the top 25 schools in the city, according to the last uh, Chicago magazine. But it's one grade per, one classroom per grade. And so they're just, he doesn't have an assistant principal, for example. To help him with, he has to do the same stuff that every other principal, but he doesn't have the funding to get an assistant principal. Um, so black schools are more likely to suffer from low enrollment. A lot of that, and as a result of the how district funds low enrollment schools, they're not properly staffed. Another thing that is behind a lot of the low enrollment is the way the district talks about black schools, the way it talks about Hispanic schools, the way it rates and messages what they do. Because many of these schools are frankly better, have better teaching and learning going on in them than any north side school you, you can find. You know, but they're starting with students who are coming from circumstances that are a world away from the circumstances that many majority white students are coming from. And as a result, the learning, the intellectual, the, the, the uh, cognitive development that has happened from the moment they were born to the moment they got to school is just on a different level. And But they are doing things with that that I can guarantee you could not happen if you substituted populations in those schools, mm. right? Um, but the district, the way the district rates them and talks about them and stigmatizes them not for the teaching that happens, but for the level that students come at. And then even with like, we every year they get brought up, 
but they're still behind because those other students on the north side, because they got brought up too. <laughs> and so it's it's just this constant game of catch up that you can never win because everybody's learning. Mm-hmm. Like even when you close the gap, it's still the gap, and you're still measured by the gap, and not by how you ensure that those kids learn despite the circumstances they came to you. And as a result, these schools get low ratings, they get classified as being on probation, uh, and it's, it stigmatizes them to the point that feeds the fact that people don't send their kids there, which creates the low enrollment, which creates the, the low staffing to get back to our point. So policies like that. Uh, and the fact that the district doesn't fund, like I said, um, schools at the state evidence-based formula level. The state has a formula that says schools who serve this kind of population with these kinds of challenges should get this amount amount of money per student. District has never come close to that. They're big on account. Accountability should have support. If you hold somebody accountable for something, you should give them the support and resources they need to do the thing you're holding them accountable to do. CPS is heavy on the accountability and empty on support. we, it's called the evidence-based formula, Ben. <laughs> and, and yet the district doesn't use it to ensure schools can do what they're asking them to do. So, All right. Now, I remember having a conversation with, uh, with you this summer, and I urge everybody to check it out. Really one of our, uh, if I must say so 